0: I'm Dave Baker.
1: And I'm Andrew Price.
0: Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty, so that you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is...
1: The Mona Lisa.
0: What is the Mona Lisa? Well, it's widely considered the greatest work by the master polymath, Leonardo da Vinci. But what if we told you that it wasn't always this way, and it was just a painting that was fine until it was stolen, and the media circus surrounding it changed the art world forever. Act 1, every empire starts with a crime. To this day, no one knows exactly who the Mona Lisa is a portrait of. We think it's a portrait of Lisa Ghirardini, a noblewoman and the wife of Francesco del Giocondo. The exact year of origin is also unknown. We think it's a painting that was created sometime between 1503 and 1506. It was eventually bought by the French king Francis I. It is on display in the Louvre in Paris, and it has been since 1719. Um, Have you ever seen the Mona Lisa, Andrew? uh no i mean I, as of as of right now uh i would have because you guys were gonna go to europe yes oh, i don't think i knew that um, where when where were you gonna go before the pandemic fucked everything
1: uh we were gonna go all around i mean we were gonna we were gonna go to paris we were gonna go to uh italy we were gonna go to switzerland we were gonna go to the uh the
0: uk just a bunch of random stuff. Uh, I have seen the Mona Lisa and it was not really what I was expecting. I don't even know really what I was expecting, but it just it it's so weird when something is so overhyped and so iconic and you see it in all these art books. And like I had I literally had to write a paper on it in art school and like going and seeing, you know, it's it's not very big. It's very, very small. Very yeah, just kind of a I mean, it is a it, by definition. It is a painting, but for some reason, you know, standing in front of a Rothko or like a big Andy Warhol or You know, some of these more the dimensions uh, communicate something about the piece where, you know, like the the Mona Lisa is like from the top of my head to my to my, you know, chest. It's it's very small. Like you can you're you're looking at it and you're like, oh, wow, this is this is the this is the painting everybody's really excited about. All right.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, we're going to get into this, but, you know, it wasn't it wasn't made with the intention of it being anything other than just a painting that. Yeah. Some guy made Um, some guy Leonardo da
0: Vinci, some guy. Well, I mean to him, he was, he was some guy.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, And uh, you know, it's fine art or specifically paintings. It's kind of, it's kind of strange. The um, uh, what they've come to represent in culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's, it's just a very strange medium to have become so important in the way that it is. Um, it's just, it's just very fascinating how culture, uh, evolves in those ways, uh, where, you know, like in, in the United States, like movies became the dominant, uh, form of pop culture. That's just like the, the main thing is movies, um, and, uh, and, and paintings, uh, as well as other fine art sculptures and, and, uh, pottery and things like that just became it just, they, they occupied this space as like this omnipotent, important art uh, more than any other form of art. It's It's very fascinating how the evolution of that has come to pass.
0: Today, the Mona Lisa is estimated to be worth somewhere north of $650 million. It is commonly referred to as the apex of artistic achievement in Western culture. It is considered the greatest painting, but the greatest of the old masters. So... How did this painting gain such fame and value? It probably always was just this way, right? Like, it's the greatest painting ever made. It was probably just instantly heralded as such. Leonardo da Vinci painted it, and he's famous, so the painting must have just been immediately world-renowned. Wrong. So how did this change? If not da Vinci, is there another single person that could be credited with propelling the Mona Lisa into the stratosphere of human culture? A man named Vincenzo Puguera. Peruga? Perugia? shit Vincenzo Perugia yes my main dude Vincenzi (laughs) born on October 8th 1881 in Italy Perugia worked as an artist for most of his life however when he turned 30 he decided to commit a crime that would forever alter the art world he decided he was going to steal the Mona Lisa in August of 1911 Perugia would carry out what is widely considered the greatest art theft in human history After surveilling the security setup of the Louvre, he purchased a white smock that was used by the museum as its employee's uniform, and he just walked into the museum on August 21st at 7 a.m. with the rest of the workers entering the premises. He proceeded to the Salon Carré, where the Mona Lisa hung. He waited until no one was in the room with him, and then he just took it off the wall. He then quickly went into a service stairwell, where he took the painting out of its frame, Placing the wood panel inside his rolled up worker's smock. <laughs> this sounds, it just doesn't sound real. It's so ridiculous.
1: Yeah. Well, that's kind of the thing about art theft. Um, it's like a really strange world. Several years ago, I got like obsessed with reading about art theft. Um, I don't know why, uh, but I, I got I got a bunch of books about it. Um, and I read a bunch of books about different different famous art thefts and then also a couple of uh famous art thieves which there are very few of yeah. um and uh the it's so fascinating and it's so like every example of art theft is as strange as this they are like simultaneously they're they're simultaneously these kind of like romantic like almost cinematic type thefts where they're just like in every example of it uh, you know, it's never like, oh, I just wanted to steal art and like make money on it. It's always been this like weird romantic thing where the, the thief has this strange ideal of like what it means to steal this piece of art. It, it, it's always imbued with this sort of gravitas like that. But then simultaneously, the theft is always really mundane. And it, it literally always involves somebody just casually strolling into a place and just
0: taking it and nobody notices. And it's it's just so crazy, too, because, like, I've fucking been in the Louvre, man. Like, it's huge. And at, at one point, you're like, I can totally understand how people could just be in here and then just take something and leave. Yeah. And on the other hand, it's like there's so many docents and security guards and checkpoints and just people in general. Like, I mean, yeah, he went in before the place opened, but even so... Like, it's just so crazy. And the fact that they were just like, Yeah, everybody's just wearing smocks. No yeah. bigs. No like security clearance. No badges. Just like, are you wearing a white toga looking thing? Nope, no bigs, bro. I mean, I think I think it was still even this way
1: as recently as like the you know, the eighties, but especially back then, I think the reason why these Thefts tend to be so like weirdly casual is because just nobody ever assumes that art is going to get stolen. And there's this weird feedback loop that leads to it where the interesting thing about art theft is that it's very rarely done because it's nearly impossible to resell art. Um, And we'll get to I'll I'll bring this up again later on when we kind of get into the thing. But it's nearly impossible to successfully steal art. And because it's nearly impossible, it's very rarely done. So nobody expects it. So museums and other places that exhibit art basically just always have their guard down because of this. And so when the thefts happen... They are literally just a guy walking in with a smock and stealing it, and then walking out casually because of I this mean, feedback. Yeah, loop. I mean
0: that it's funny because, like, you know, in the two thousands, that's basically what Banksy was doing. You know, is yeah. he was just like walking into galleries and like vandalizing paint, paintings or putting his own paintings that are like spoof paintings or you know, whatever, just like walking in with a fucking giant canvas, stapling it to the fucking wall and then walking the fuck out.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that might have actually been part of what kind of got me fascinated. And it was watching um, Exit Through the Gift Shop. And, uh, you know, whatever you think about the, you know, there's a lot of speculation about like how much of that movie is like a mockumentary and how much of it is real. Um, and like how much of a real person versus a character Mr. Brainwashes, But like, there really is that that one shot that shows Banksy walk into that museum and then just go up and stick his painting on the wall. And like there's a bunch of people around him and nobody notices. Yeah. yeah. He just does it. And it, it that shot alone just really fascinated me. Um, and yeah, there's just something so strange about the dichotomy between um, how elevated and um, sort of uh, uh, prestigious fine art is versus like how casual these like crimes are uh Mm -hmm. that's just endlessly fascinating to me
0: it's kind of the same social contract like there's an invisible there's an invisibility that surrounds all of these subjects of like the idea that money holds value is a social contract the idea that fine art is worth an exorbitant amount of money is a social contract the fact that nobody's taking the the art off the wall which nine times out of ten is like you know to be blunt, like an older person who's like retired, just like hanging out, like they're not going to really be able to stop anybody. Like, if two guys with a single snub nose 35 walked in there, yeah, they would leave with millions of dollars worth of fine art, you know what I mean? which, like, is, which has happened. Yes, I mean absolutely, that was that yeah. was basically what happened with the
1: infamous Gardner Museum theft.
0: I don't think I know that one. Which one was that one?
1: Uh, so there was a there's a museum, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. It's in it's in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, so uh, basically, this 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 museum was started by uh, Isabella Stewart Gardner, who is a rich person uh, <laughs> for sure.
0: For sure. I think that goes without saying for most people in the art world. Yeah, she uh,
1: she she was she was an art. uh, Isabel Stewart Gardner was an art collector uh, who lived from 1840 to 1924, philanthropist and a patron of the arts. And she uh, she commissioned this museum to uh, to house uh, a number of famous uh, works of art, uh, most notably uh, a painting called The Concert by uh, Vermeer. And in the 90s, somebody just waltzed in and stole a bunch of stuff from it. And uh, they basically did it in that way. They, they walked in with a mask and a gun and they just took what they needed. And uh, there was basically a very specific uh, instructions in Isabella Stewart Gardner's will about how the museum would be handled after her death and the stipulations in her will were that uh, no art could ever be put into or taken out of the museum. She wanted it basically to be preserved as it was forever, as long as it was being funded by her estate. And so uh, there's very strict legal stipulations that sh- that uh, that dictate that they cannot mm-hmm. ever remove art from it, and they can never put new art into it. And because of this, um, there is just sections of the museum that are just, basically uh they're basically just crime scenes of these other pieces of art that have been stolen because they can't replace them so you can go into the museum you can see all these other pieces of art but then there are just random places where there's just nothing that's awesome and just and just empty empty easels and empty spots on the wall where they just legally can't replace the stolen artwork and it is one of it's it's Easily one of the uh, most notorious art thefts in history, alongside this story, because nobody knows who has the art. Nobody knows who stole it. They've—it's never been recovered. There's been a lot of conspiracy theories, and a lot of—you uh, know—there's even there's even a conspiracy theory that Banksy did it. Like there's there's just all these conspiracy theories, um, and nobody's ever figured it out. And it's very rare because you know, as we'll as I want to talk about a little later when we get into more of the specific yeah. story points. Um, there are are very few art thefts that actually result in a piece of art that goes missing forever and is never recovered.
0: Yeah, I mean, this one lasted a significant amount of time, but we'll get to that in a second. He then quickly went to the service staircase where he took the painting out of its frame, placing the wood panel inside his rolled up worker's smock. He then strolled down the worker's entrance and out just the way he came in. He left the premises of the Louvre. The fact that the painting had been stolen was not noticed until the next day when the artist Louis Barode came to the museum with the intention of sketching it and the other old master paintings for artistic study. Initially, the staff of the Louvre told everyone that the painting was being photographed and it was just thought to be out on loan to a photographer. Then they quickly realized that this was not true. The Louvre closed for a week while the staff attempted to get to the bottom of what was happening. The French poet Galamay Apollinaire was suspected to have stolen the painting. The media fever pitch for a culprit was so intense that Apollinaire was actually imprisoned for the crime. While being held against his will, despite not being the actual perpetrator, Apollinaire fingered his friend and contemporary Pablo Picasso as the mastermind.
1: (laughs) And... You know, once again, it's so crazy and surreal that that is a thing that's that he that like for a while, Pablo Picasso was a suspect in this crime. And you're just like, how is that possible? Like, it just feels it feels like the Avengers where you're just like all these characters are are crossing paths in this. But once again, the art world is so small and it's so rare that this kind of thing happens that like it actually is much more plausible that. He did do it than in any other scenario, in any other type of art or any other, any other field.
0: And also, Picasso was an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> That's also a mitigating factor here. Like, if if you had told me, like, oh, yeah, Picasso stole all these paintings, I'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, eh, sounds about right. Mm-hmm. That guy I was a dick. Yeah, sure, I believe it. Yeah, I love I love that – I love stories like this where, you know, before security cameras were prevalent, before the internet was around, before fucking Excel spreadsheets were everywhere. I love when things, like, fall through – I love when things fall through the cracks in this way. Like, there's so many stories about, like, people lying their way into jobs. Like, George Lazenby was an Australian model who lied his way into getting the job of James Bond. He said he was an actor – in movies in Japan and Germany, and they were just like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, you, you say you did that, so you probably did. Or like Orson Welles lied his way into basically a career as a Broadway director because he was like, yeah, I, I was a part of a really acclaimed Broadway produ- or a, a theater production company in Ireland where I was just living. And uh, yeah, I should definitely be running this Broadway theater company because I just did it.
1: Yeah, like how I lied my way into this podcast by being like, yeah, I, I love... Uh, the hard die boys. <laughs> non C.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm I love st- non C.
1: I'm still wondering why that didn't serve as a red flag to you. But yeah, yeah. I, 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 no, get, I mean, I'm, my point is I get it.
0: Yeah. You're you're living proof that the only qualification you need in life is for the Internet to not be readily accessible to the person interviewing you and for you to have unshakable confidence, which you do. So you're good. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But yeah, I mean, it gets harder and harder every year. It's but it's still a thing. Uh social engineering is very fascinating to me as well. Um and I think that's probably why that's probably more to do with why I'm so fascinated with this art theft stuff is because it, it's it it is just people getting by on just waltzing into a room and just no, you know, just be, they're supposed to be there. And, yep. and, and that's what everyone believes, because that's exactly how they present themselves. And, you know, they have they have that unshakable uh, uh, confidence and they're able to bluff and get away with things. And, you know, this uh, this thing more than anything else is really just dependent on that. And there's so many examples of that where people are able to just waltz into a room and pretend like they're supposed to be there and then just walk out with hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars worth
0: of art. So crazy. And on that note, act break. (laughs) Act two, two years of waiting. Picasso was brought in and questioned, but not arrested. Eventually, both men were exonerated. You might be asking yourself, how was it that the Mona Lisa was so easy to steal Even if getting into the building was so easy, how was it that Pugera knew how he could even take the painting off of the wall? Well, the answer to that is pretty simple. He was the man who built the frame and installed the painting in the Louvre, which kind of seems like somebody that you would like immediately talk to, even if it was just to be like, hey, bro. We just got our painting stolen. How the fuck is this possible? Yeah. Like you would f- you feel like you would bring that guy in immediately just to like give you feedback on what happened. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently 1911 just operating under a different standard. Yeah, I mean no no uh no background
1: checks on the on the frame builders. Yeah. Um yeah, no no uh where where's where is Inspector Clouseau? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Where's that where's that Interpol agent from Lupin the 3rd. Where's the where's the crack French detective to get to the bottom of this? Where's the where's, Mona where's, where's Where's uh Chuuchiwuchi? That's where what is I, Chuchi That's Chuchi what I want to know.
0: Where is Chuuchiwuchi? The Mona Lisa remained in Pugeras' possession for close to 2 years. During this time there was a massive media circus surrounding the painting. Inspector Zenigata. Point-
1: that's his, that's his name.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: For all you nerds Loop out the there third. i
0: knew it yeah. I, I didn't google that i remembered during this time there was a massive media circus surrounding the painting at one point a newspaper ran a headline that claimed over 60 detectives were working around the clock to attempt to regain the painting that's fucking that's crazy to me it, it's it's, the, it's so
1: weird it's the same thing where the the art is so held in high regard that they're just like we have to find this
0: but but it's but at and this then you point ha- and then you the ha- art isn't even held in that higher well, regard. But j- it's like not, a cool painting. Well, not but this it's painting
1: not- specifically, but just art is so important to the French that they're just like they they've got they've got uh, they've got the the police chief from uh, Leon the Professional being like, bring me everyone, everyone, <laughs> and yet and yet somebody just walked in and grabbed it. Like yeah. it's just such a weird like
0: cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's so bizarre. And also like you can kind of it's interesting how history repeats itself where you can, you know, just even in those two sentences of, you know, there was this big media circus surrounding the painting and at one point at the height of the fervor around it a paper ran a story saying 60 detectives were looking for it at once. That sounds like something that would happen right now. Yeah. That sounds like, you know, we're we're in this very extreme polarized era, which, you know, World War One is about to happen, right? World War One happens in 1914, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, World War I is about to happen. You know, there's uh, massive industrial change happening. Like the world is fundamentally shifting on that turn of the century in the same way that it's changing right now. Um, and it's so crazy how it's basically the same, but also completely fucking different. Also-
1: I want to do a uh, police procedural called 60 detectives um where each episode focuses on similar to a Law & Order or CSI, it focuses on one specific crime. Yeah. But in every episode they put 60 different detectives on that one crime and then we intercut between each between all 60 each of, them. One yeah. of them.
0: Yeah. Um, but it, but also instead of the boom, boom, it would just be of one of the French detectives going, ha-ha.
1: Yes. <laughs> and each episode is five hours long.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Needless to say, the hubbub surrounding the missing painting caused its fame to grow and catapulted it into being the greatest painting of all time, in air quotes. Why would Perugia steal this painting that was, at the time he stole it, not the greatest painting in the world? Well, the commonly held belief is that he was an Italian patriot, who believed that the painting should be returned to Italy. However, as the media circus grew and grew and grew, he became reticent to let the painting leave his possession because money is a hell of a thing. He was like a, he was like an Italian
1: Indiana Jones.
0: Yeah. This a painting belongs in a different museum. <laughs> <laughs> this a painting, it belongs in a museum until I realize how much it's going to be worth and then I just keep it in my house. This is where we get it canceled. Right here with these voices. <laughs> also, my inappropriate relationship with
1: my college uh, student is just glossed over, but very strange. With him? It, there's that scene in Indiana Jones where oh, one oh, of his that. students yes. closes their eyes. Oh, yes, yes, eyes yes. It's yes, yeah, yeah,
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I, I thought you were making a joke about Vincenzo. My boy Vinny. I was like, what? <laughs> my boy Vinny? Fucking underage people? Nah, maybe no. We, maybe
1: we get canceled, but not Vinny. Yeah, not Vinny, Vinny man. I'll die. I'll I'll
0: die for Vinny. Yeah. Uh Uh-uh. At a certain point, though. Vinny's like the Simpsons. Yeah, I can't fucking pronounce his name, but goddamn, I feel such an allegiance towards him for no reason. At a certain point, though, he grew impatient and attempted to sell the painting to Giovanni Poggi. Poggi? Poggi? P-O-G-G-I? Giovanni Poggi. Fuck it. Whatever. At a certain point, he became- You said said Giovanni was such- confidence and then you d- lost it Poggi Poggi I don't know man at a certain point he grew impatient at the attempt and attempted to sell the painting to Giovanni Poggi the director of the I got to say I
1: got to say maybe maybe I'm going to get canceled for this but Italian words sound like a,
0: a kid making up Italian words <laughs> I mean maybe it, the best part is what if I'm what if I'm wrote all of these words wrong <laughs> You know what I mean like I'm like I'm like the Uffizi Gallery in Florence that belonged to Giovanni Poggi. You
1: definitely spelled Perugia three different ways.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. Throughout this
1: whole thing. Yeah, I don't, it's all I don't know like which I, one's the
0: right one. Poggi worked with authorities to catch our boy Vinny. However, part of his stipulations for aiding the police was that he, uh, that he wanted to be able to exhibit the Mona Lisa for two weeks in his gallery. So... Guess what? Uh, Our boy Vinny got he got busted for two years, two years with this shit.
1: And once again, this is genuinely how ninety nine percent of art uh, thefts end because the art world, even back then, is so insular and it's so small uh, that if you steal a piece of I mean, number one, if you steal a piece of art, it's 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 kind of the dumbest thing you could steal. Uh, because you steal money and, like, yeah, money is marked and money has serial numbers or whatever, but there's ways around that. Um, and also you have to be, you know, you have to be a little bit smarter to catch that if you were on the receiving end of stolen money. You'd have to be like, I should get these uh, serial numbers scanned. And, you know, and, and it's not as inherently suspicious for somebody to give you money because yeah, money is just a currency that people pay for things with. But art is kind of a just a dumb thing to try to steal for monetary gain because by definition anybody who would want it knows what it is
0: yeah and so they
1: know that it was stolen and so 99 percent of art thefts end with the person finally just like basically saying fuck it and getting careless they can't find anybody who's interested in it they've tried to sell it on the black market unsuccessfully because nobody wants it because anybody who knows what it is knows that it's stolen and wants nothing to do with it and anybody who doesn't know what it is has no idea what the true value of of it is yeah they finally get careless and they just find somebody usually an art dealer who's interested in buying it the art dealer either buys it or is about to buy it and then they just go and tell the police they're just like this guy is trying to sell me this fucking painting that was just stolen. It's literally how all art thefts basically end.
0: <laughs> Except in comics when when pages get stolen in comics and then it just never ends well and yeah. people just lose they just lose work and it just never comes back.
1: It's really well, sad and depressing. And that's just that's even more that that's that kind of just you're proving your own point. Yeah. Uh, your own thing that you say all the time is just the reason for that is because the average joe if they if they see a kirby page they're just just like it's just what is this comic book stuff
0: yeah exactly Uh, yeah that's a really good impersonation of me doing an impersonation yeah exactly yeah um so our boy Vinny, he gets busted and he goes to prison and he uh i know you can read in the outline but for the sake of this improv any guesses on how long you would think someone who stole the fucking mona lisa went to prison for a hundred and forty years. A hundred and forty years. You would be off by a hundred and thirty-nine years and six months. Our boy Vinny P got fucking six months in prison. The saddest part about that is the math
1: that you had to do in your head to say that. That I saw you I could see your in your eyes the math that you were doing.
0: But yeah, he he got fucking six months. So why would our boy Vinny P get six months in prison for stealing? One of the now at this point, most prized paintings in in the in the planet, in the in the history of art, Uh, because everybody loved that he was an Italian folk hero. Basically, they they all loved that his justification was that he stole it because the painting deserved to be in Italy. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a like a Bonnie and Clyde situation. It's amazing. It's like Robin Hood, but way lower stakes or higher stakes, I guess, depending on your point of view on that. Um, Yeah he basically became like an Italian folk hero For a minute uh, And he was hailed for his patriotism and convictions For bringing the Mona Lisa back to Italy Uh, Pugera's own fame Spawned uh, A branching web of people Looking to co-opt his narrative though And who's to say that they weren't involved Or were involved But all it really ends up being Is just like a weird mess of people being Like I was there too Eduardo Oh my god Eduardo de Valleferino, uh, the famed, the famed thief and con man, claimed that he actually masterminded the operation. The original plan was that the famed art forger, Yves Chaudron, 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 Chaudron uh, was to have created six copies of the painting and the group, all three of them, would auction these off sporadically over the course of many years uh, basically milking a private collector's pool telling everybody that they had the original Mona Lisa when in fact obviously they would make these six copies and they would keep the original for themselves and you know continually duping the public over and over again um, his account of the heist and his purported involvement was published in a story in the Saturday Evening Post in 1932 which is if you're keeping track 21 years later after the a whole situation had kind of resolved it after the initial heist. Um, Yeah. And once again, the all the, all of these art thefts, they all
1: tend to have this uh, conspiracy theory, uh, almost like JFK level uh, conspiracy culture around them um, that just seemingly tends to ring throughout all the different art thefts that have happened throughout history. Uh, similar to this, the the Isabella Stewart Gardner uh, theft. There's all kinds of conspiracy theories about who was involved with it or who did it. Um, and a lot of different people who have like either taken credit for it or people who have said that other people have done it. Um, and they've basically been like, well, I'm not saying I didn't do it. Um, and there's just that there's just that whole zeitgeist around it. Um, yeah, uh, there's there's a uh, there's a famous art uh, thief. That I want to do an episode about uh, his name is Miles J
0: Connor, and uh, he. Uh, and is if you're wife- paying attention at home, Miles J Connor is actually an anagram for Andrew Price. <gasps> <laughs> uh, that
1: yeah, we just do the episode, and then we just end up like it's some weird like twist ending where it, it, we just slowly discover, or you slowly discover that it's me, and then I just disappear from the country. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he a lot of people believe that he was responsible. He
0: denies it though. I love it. I love I yeah, I, I love this shit. Like uh the like art, art forgery in general. I love uh uh what's his name? Elmir, the the most famous art forger. That guy's so silly. I love that dude. If you've never seen the documentary F for Fake, highly recommended. Uh, it's a Orson Welles documentary all about art thievery and art forgery and the kind of like charlatanism that's necessary when you're involved in any sort of artistic pursuit. Um, uh, one of my favorite movies ever made. So if you haven't seen it, go watch F for Fake. It's really, really good. Um, yep. uh, thank you for the support, Andrew. Um, well, yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, yep. You,
1: <laughs> the reason why I said that is because I the connection – Dropped for a second, so I didn't hear anything you said, except for for F for Fake is a great movie.
0: And then I just said, yep. (laughs) (laughs) It's even better. I love it. Uh, The surrounding insanity that spiraled up after the Mona Lisa uh, was recovered really only got even weirder with time. On December 30th, a Bolivian man named Ugo Uganza-Viergas threw a rock at the Mona Lisa as hard as he could, shattering the glass that kept it safe. Thankfully, the painting was mostly unharmed aside from a speck of pigment that was jogged loose on the Mona Lisa's left eyebrow. The reason uh, that it was encased in glass at the time was because before our boy Ugo, a man had run at the painting with a razor blade, attempting to cut a chunk out of it free so that he could have it, because he claimed that he was in love with the painting.
1: Yeah, I mean that that guy's insane. But uh, these attempts at defacing um, art like this, uh, I f- I find them to be really interesting as well, uh, because they they feel like they feel like genuine. Um, pieces of performance art. Uh I mean that guy was just insane, but uh as we kind of have been talking about and and sort of uh laying track for uh you know art uh and I and I definitely want to discuss this way more in depth later on uh in in act in the discussion portion, but Act 3 uh, discussion. Yes, uh art has is is imbued with this with this almost like uh, it's it's imbued with his importance that is dictated by a number of different elements that aren't always necessarily about the actual art um, and more about a bunch of different other outside factors. And, you know, much like, you know, kind of the stuff that Banksy was doing of just like walking into museums and sticking up his art. Like whenever, whenever, whenever Banksy did that, you know, you could think about it like, oh, just a weird prank. But, you know, it's, it's kind of profound what he did, uh, you know, because he was basically... He's basically kind of just like demystifying the concept of a piece of art being important because he's just like, I can just come in here and stick this on the wall. Nobody fucking notices uh, because this whole thing is just kind of bullshit. Um, And there was that 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 um, that thing that happened most recently where uh, there was a there was an avant garde artist who had a art installation that was a banana taped to a wall. Yeah. And then a different a different avant-garde artist went into the into the gallery and ate the banana. And like he just and there's video of it. He just walks up and there's a crowd around him. And then he just walks up and takes the banana off the wall and then just eats it. And everybody gasps. And like it's funny and kind of absurd. But it's also kind of a profound statement. To just be like to just be like to have that amount of uh, self reference to your own art form and just be like, you know, I'm out there, I'm doing these avant garde uh, pieces of performance art, but like
0: it's just a fucking banana like i'm just going to walk in here and eat it like I, I yeah and and all of the all of these guys that we're talking about whether it's Banksy or the the banana artist or the guy who ate the banana like they're all descendant from Marcel Duchamp right they are mm. they're all descendant from his piece Our Mutt which if you're not familiar with it um Ar Mutt's i think it's called the fountain maybe or untitled i don't remember the actual name of it but basically Marcel Duchamp was a was a, an artist uh who was a painter who then got really into conceptual and performance art and he submitted a piece <laughs> to a very famous show where he took a a urinal and just put it in the show and that was his piece and he claimed that it was art. He didn't change it at all other than writing a pseudonym on it. He claimed it you know, he put R Mutt, which was his uh you know, his his hypothetical persona, performance art persona for this piece. Yep. And it's That, that piece was a big, like, turning point in the art world where things shifted away from exercises in craft and exercises in skill and exercises in, um, an ability to crystallize time down into a single moment, which is what most paintings, whether they're literally trying to replicate reality or, you know, fragmented and abstractly replicate some sort of feeling or emotion into, What it is, uh, you know, onto a piece of canvas like that's that was at that point in time outdated as soon as Marcel Duchamp was just like, yeah, fuck you guys. This is all bullshit. Your cults of persona are stupid. Like all of this is meaningless. Uh, I'm going to be the most nihilistic and the most impetulant and the most um, neener, neener, neener that I possibly can by just literally putting a a fucking toilet in the middle of this uh in the middle of this show and i'm gonna wag my nose and my finger at the establishment and say that that is art because art is all about context and art is all about repositioning something into a uh through a lens where we are all looking at it as something more than it inherently is um which i vacillate between hating and loving i kind of loathe marcel Duchamp, and i also kind of Love Marcel Duchamp, and all of this stuff is kind of the, a similar deconstruction of the idea that human attention is what generates value. The social contract, so the, the social contract and construct that we've all agreed upon is what produces the um, the value in this work. And so, inherently, regardless of what it is, as long as there's a human eyeball looking at it, it's worthy. Um, yeah.
1: And that's, that's like a lot. Of, you know, it's like you said, you know, they're all descendants of this um, this channel of thinking. It's very similar to much of what Banksy does, whether it's like the time that he was selling original Banksy's like at some random stand in like Brooklyn or something like that for like 20 bucks a piece. Yeah. And they were, they were being sold as prints of Banksy works, but they were actually original Banksy works. Or the whole thing he did recently where he had that painting that was set to, like, as soon as it sold at auction, it was set to, like, auto... Uh,
0: Disintegrate or just yeah, destroy it itself, auto-shred, yeah.
1: auto yeah. or um, kind of the whole movie of Exit Through the Gift Shop, where, you know, a lot of people speculate that um, the the whole character in the movie was not real... And, yeah, if you have if you haven't seen Exit yeah. Through
0: the Gift Shop Gift Shop, it's a documentary directed by Banksy about um when Banksy and a bunch of the graffiti guys were coming up in the nineties, there was a and nineties and the two thousands, there was a dude named Terry who followed them all around and videotaped them. So he has footage of Shepard Fairey you know, putting up obey uh wheat pastes when he's like, you know, 21 or whatever. He has footage of Invader putting up the little, you know. Uh, 16-bit tiles when he's like 25 or whatever and like he was just a friend of a lot of these guys when the in air quotes street art movement god I fucking hate that term but when they were all kind of coming up so Banksy kind of struck a deal with him and because Terry decided that he was going to stop kind of being a documentarian he was going to go launch his own artistic career and be an artist himself and so Banksy took a bunch of this footage that Terry had And followed him around recording new footage and Terry made this artistic persona called Mr. Brainwash where he makes kind of really bad um, derivative work that's all very – it's Warhol, Banksy-esque work. Yeah, it's like – well, it's
1: double derivative because it's like, you know, Andy Warhol's whole thing was just taking pop culture and just like giving it back to you. That was his that was Mm -hmm. his whole thing. And then like and then Mr. Brainwash is just like doing that. He's just like, I'm just going to do stuff like Andy Warhol, which is like this double like fakery thing. Yeah.
0: And and so the documentary is about how people start to believe the hype of Mr. Brainwash and they start to think that his work is good. And the ending of the film, you know, you're you see this big gallery show that, in air quotes, Mr. Brainwash has put on a <laughs> big debut show and all these pieces are selling for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And there's lines around the block of people trying to get in. And, you know, they're interviewing all these people on the street who are, you know, they're like, what do you think of the work? And, you know, average everyday people is like, oh, it's so visionary. I can't believe that I was here. I'm so glad that I got to see this, this is something. I gonna tell my grandkids. And then they cut to. Uh, Shepard Fairey like not that I think Shepard Fairey necessarily is the arbiter of good taste but yeah. he's an artist people know and he's like looking at the paintings and he's kind of like nodding his head and the camera guy like walks up to him and he's like hey what, what do you think of the show and he says something to the effect of like yeah it's a show yeah it's a show and like <laughs> because it's it's completely the emperor has no clothes but then the craziest part about this is that Mr. Brainwash ended up going on to be a very successful artist and did yeah, record Yeah, still
1: yeah, he's still just a thing. Still doing it.
0: Yeah, yeah, he he did record covers for Madonna, like album art for Madonna, he did he's he's done a whole bunch of stuff and he <laughs> you know, the and then the conspiracy theory which you're referencing is or not conspiracy, the the open secret that you're discussing is this documentary portrays Terry as a guy who genuinely wanted to become an artist. And then the movie is about how everyone in the art world is a charlatan and they've just accepted this guy and the emperor's new clothes style situation. But the kind of, if you read between the lines, this Terry guy is just a friend of Banksy's and Banksy's like, I bet I could make anybody into a, in air quotes, famous artist. Yeah. I'm going to make a movie and turn this guy, the schlubbiest of the schlubs, into a world famous artist just to prove how stupid the fine art world is. And the movie doesn't necessarily end that way. So you you could get something else out of it if you wanted to. But knowing Banksy and the people involved, I think it's just an, it's a fact that that's what it is. Like it's, it's, it's a critique of the system. In know, it's, it's almost the anti Duchampian critique where it's, it's the same critique but inverted because everybody believes that it is the exact same thing. Yeah. Movie's great. Love the movie. I've seen it like six times. It's awesome. But then again, I, I like I said previously, I love movies about like art the, art theft and just general bullshit about how all art all the art world is, <laughs> is bullshit. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, I mean I, I love the movie too. I saw it in theaters a couple times and highly yeah. recommended from the deep cuts. From the deep cuts boys. <laughs> The D.P. D.C. boys. Nope. Nope. We're not doing it. Nope. D.C. boys. D.C. boys.
1: We'll circle back on that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. we'll, we'll, We'll work out the branding. In 1974, a woman attacked the Mona Lisa with red spray paint in protest of what she felt was the museum's lack of effort to make the premises accessible to disabled folks. Obviously, the Mona Lisa is now the most famous painting in the world, even at one point hanging uh, at, at one point in its lifetime, it hung in Napoleon's bedroom, which is so weird. <laughs> <laughs> so ultimately, what happened to old Vinnie P? Well, he got out of prison and then fell on financial hard times and enlisted in the military where he served during World War One. He survived the war and returned home to marry and have a daughter, ironically, the Italian folk hero, moved back to France where he worked for the rest of his life as a painting, decorator, installing, and framing works. He passed away on his actual birthday of October 8th, 1925 on his 44th birthday. Rest he was not, of his
1: life, in quotes. Yeah, <laughs>
0: no shit, right? He died yeah. like
1: three seconds later.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, he was not widely written about during uh, the immediate vicinity of his death in fact many of his obituaries even got the date of his death wrong the 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 irony in that is just so crazy that he
1: the act that he committed made this piece of art the most famous painting in the world and he was not given any recognition or historical observance
0: yeah <laughs> even if good or bad even yeah, if it was he
1: didn't go he down didn't, as like the history's villain he's just no he was just a guy yeah died
0: it's so interesting because I feel like now, the minute that guy died, there would be the complex legacy of Vinnie P. Think pieces on Vulture in like five seconds. Yeah. You know? Oh, you think Vinnie P. is a villain, but he's actually a hero. 10 reasons why when you click the link, you know? Like, well, yeah. I
1: mean, it's it, and and going back to Exit through the gift shop, it's like it, it's crazy because, uh, you know, Banksy, if, if that is to be believed, Banksy did that, and he basically just manufactured a famous person or somebody that, in some shape or form, will be remembered in history. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, he kind of, he kind of, he was right because then you have stuff like the Tiger King, where it's it's like that guy is just now a national celebrity, and we're just gonna always remember that random dude. He saw a tiger
0: and that tiger saw a man. Yeah. And now and 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 we'll remember that guy forever. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really strange. It's kind of this weird, I feel like there's kind of like a parallaxing effect where like if you're on one of two sides, if you're either like incredibly virtuous and have, you know, like a really high level of skill or are very dedicated to a craft to an extreme degree, you can excel and you know, the the meritocracy will reward you in a certain sense. And then on the other hand, if you're a complete, utter piece of shit and you're the worst possible version of yourself, the novelty of that, that vileness also kind of like pulls you up through the system. Yeah. But if you're in the middle, you're fucked. Yeah. You can't be, you can't be an asshole and really good. And you can't be really bad, but very nice. You're just, you gotta be on one of those two extremes. And if you are, a crazy, you know, a, a crazy vile, repugnant person, then you better be, you know, really, 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 really good at what you do. There's also that version. There's the there's the Roman Polanski version where it's like yeah. that guy keeps getting work because unfortunately he's a good director. And on that note, ad break. <laughs> Alright, Act Three. Discussion, baby. Discussion. Discussion. Yeah, so
1: they, they they conducted this this multi-year study that basically concluded that uh most famous artists are famous because of their their friends and people that they know as opposed to their actual art. Yep. Um controversy to contra- contrary to conventional literature there was no statistical support for the relationship between an artist's creativity and the fame that they ultimately achieved. Um, And uh, you know that once again, if, if you haven't already uh, add to the gift shop to your, your uh, streaming queue, um, you know, that movie, that movie just defines the entire thing where uh, the import of uh, a piece of fine art or, a series of art or an artist is kind of like the simulacrum where it's built it's based off of nothing. it's like it's not to say that there isn't great art uh but you know it's it's kind of mutually exclusive uh the relationship between uh, a great piece of art and art becoming revered not even made famous but revered is great uh yeah. and, it, and, and it, it just kind of it springs out of some weird, out of nowhere ether where something just gets perceived in some way for, or for some reason as great. And then it just becomes great because of that. And that's more yeah. important than whether the thing is great or not.
0: So I have two thoughts about that. And I'm, I'm going to talk for a second about Ed Burns, the filmmaker and Francis Bacon, the painter and trust me, it'll make sense, but I just wanted to set that up as I go through it. Okay. So, uh, Ed Burns started in the 90s with Tarantino and and Kevin Smith and all those guys during the kind of like Miramax heyday of independent film in America. He self-funded a movie for like, you know, $20,000. He was working as an entertainment tonight PA and then at nights shooting this movie with his friends. Um, I'm not actually a very big Ed Burns fan. I don't know why I read his book, but I read – he wrote a biography and I I read the biography of – Him coming up through the indie film thing, being a studio actor, being in these big budget Hollywood movies with people like Robert De Niro and, you know, directing bigger movies. And then, you know, he had a TV show on TNT for a while that was like a, you know, cops and robbers noir style show that Steven Spielberg produced. So he was like, he like was in that world for a hot minute. And one of the things that he was saying is there was like this desert period where nobody would touch him. He was in a couple big budget movies that had flopped and none of his directorial stuff had gotten off the ground so he kind of realized that in order to make something successful in order to make a movie sell you have to have two things you need a story that's compelling that the movie is telling you know you need two stories basically the movie is telling one story that's solid it does what it's supposed to do the mechanisms line up you know the acts connect to each other and then on top of that story you need a story about making the movie so for all of these movies, he started self-financing movies for like $15,000, $10,000, $20,000, um, where he would hire local community theater actors and he would shoot them at his house on digital in like 2005. And he made, you know, four or five movies and he got them on iTunes and he got them distributed. And every movie, he would manufacture a story about the movie. Well, you got to see this new movie because this new movie is the first movie shot completely on digital cameras. Oh, well, you got to shoot – you got to see this movie because this movie is the first movie to star an all-geriatric cast of people who live in an uh, old folks home. You got to see this movie because this is the first movie where everyone in the movie is an amputee. I'm just making those last couple up. Those aren't real. I'm just – but, you know, like every – you you need to give – a broader backdrop that's interesting and enticing, and then you use the thing you made as like the kind of like honeypot, the lure that allows people into whatever that narrative is. And um, I've been thinking a lot about Francis Bacon recently, and Francis Bacon, you know, was this renowned painter doing very disturbing horror esque paintings um, throughout the you know mid twentieth century. Um, And they all revolve around like dismembered bodies and bizarre warping of facial features in a very kind of gothic and almost Cronenbergian body horror way. And he, uh, he was a gay man who was sent away from his family because he was gay and he was basically raised by a family friend or his uncle, his uncle, sorry. No, no, a family friend. He was raised by a family friend who they thought was going to kind of like scare him straight. But the family friend turned out to be sexually interested in him. And so his like basically second dad started dating him when he was really young. And he had this really complex relationship with masochism and and his own sexuality where he was very self-loathing because his, you know, sexual proclivities weren't embraced in the time and all of that feeds into the work and if you took those paintings and divorced it from the story of the traumatic person you know there's a person that had all these traumatic things happen to them even if the paintings were just as good i don't think that they excel in the way that his career had just this meteoric rise throughout the you know from the 40s to the 70s just huge amounts of money made you know he had you know, the, the, the French government bought a painting from him. They, they gave him a fucking show like the French government put a show on of his of his work. And, you know, he he is a perfect example of the type of person that you're talking about where he was friends with all of the right people at the right time and also good enough at being a fun party guy drowning his you know sorrows in alcohol. Uh, that all of those things kind of dovetailed into exactly what we're talking about. Where yeah, and then you look at the
1: painting, and you you know you know all that, and you're like, oh, I, I can see the pain.
0: Yeah, which which is partly which is partly like completely fucking true, but also it's that same simulacrum thing where you're like you're reading into the material more because you know. Who the person is that made it and their backstory. Yeah. Um, and like there are very evocative, horrific paintings, but it it they they it just has a completely separate, almost three-dimension, three-dimensional nature once you have the cult of persona around it. And I think that's what's so interesting about the fine art world, both in a good and a bad way, in that it's not actually about craft nine times out of ten. It's about who can perpetuate a cult of persona the best. Mm -hmm. Um, which still happens today. Um, And honestly, I wish that more figurative illustrators, and I don't just mean comics, although we both know everybody listening to this fucking podcast knows that I'm talking about comics, but like not literally just comics. I mean, just in general, figurative illustrators, I wish that they had more of that kind of flair for the theatricality and the um, embracing of a cult of personality and a narrative around their work that's not just – you know because in the fine art world figurative illustration is, is looked down upon because it's not about anything other than look how well I can render the human form look look at me draw this hand or look at me draw these feet like there's not well, a some,
1: some of them do uh, in in bad ways uh, like, a, like a like a comic artist that will go unnamed that's becoming more famous now despite having been in the industry for decades because they've just revealed themselves as a transphobic piece of shit
0: wait who the fuck oh yes yes yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting though about how, and you, you know, speaking of people on that end of the political spectrum, I really don't like anything that Comics Gate stands for. I think those guys suck. I think they're bigots. I think they're bad for everything, comics especially. Um, and somebody who's really embraced that side of things, the kind of cult of personality is, Ethan Van Skyver, who is like the de facto head of the Comics Gate guys. Like he fucking sucks. He's literally like making Nazi imagery. Like his sketchbook is named My Struggle. And it, it, which if you don't know, that's what Hitler's book was called. It was yeah. called Mein Kampf that he wrote when he was in prison. And like, if you look at the cover to his sketchbook, like Sinestro is flying with his hand outstretched and his hand is going off the composition. And it's basically in a Nazi salute. Now, you can say that he's being sarcastic and it's is to trigger the, the the libs. But you know, people died. Like why are we why are you why why even go down that road if you don't want to deal with the consequences of that? Yeah. Uh fuck that dude. Fuck, the, fuck Ethan Van Skyver and fuck Gate. Fuck those guys. But I just bring it up to say that that is a very potent weaponization of these exact tactics that you're talking about, where there's a story behind the story. That's why, you know, all of Ethan Van Skyver and all these guys are running these big Kickstarters and, and Indiegogo campaigns that are making hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars because there are people on the internet who are each individually backing those campaigns for thousands of dollars just out of a pure I'm I'm not actually backing this because I want to read the comic. I don't that story isn't what's speaking yeah, to exactly. me. Exactly.
1: And not and not to say that none of them are not none of them are talented but they 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 have a new fan base uh or a spe- or an old but newly ga- or an, or an yep. old but newly galvanized fan base specifically because of a narrative rather than the actual work and it and it and it kind of goes both ways you can you can become you can support somebody for a narrative uh despite Uh, and and that has nothing to do with their actual work. And you could also, you know, hate something or somebody based on a narrative that really doesn't have anything to do with them personally, you know, kind of like just the universal uh, hatred of that uh, Greta Greta von Thurberg or whatever whatever her name is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Just for what she represents, uh, you know, you have horrible people online um, mercilessly bullying this young girl. Uh, not because of who she is specifically, not because of anything she does, but because of what she represents.
0: Yeah. And that's a lot of what's what's happening with the, you know, the Comicsgate movement is the the far right end of the political spectrum there. They have all these coded you know messages of like, we believe that comics should be apolitical. And we believe that consumers should come first. And we believe that comics should be good again. And we believe that we should just make comics that really just speak to the best of when comics were awesome in the 90s. What? What the fuck are you talking about? Comics shouldn't be political? You think Captain America isn't political? That's literally the first cover of the Captain America comics is him punching Hitler in the fucking face, you idiot. Yeah. What are you talking about? Like, and also you saying that comics shouldn't be political and like their, their slogan, if you've ever watched any of their YouTube channels, videos, cause they're all, there's like six guys who all make YouTube. They all run YouTube mini empires preaching hate and their, their, their slogan is get woke, go broke. Yeah. I mean, like, that, that, the that fu- phrase
1: has just like permeated. I've, I've, I hear a lot of people saying that.
0: Like, fuck you. Yeah, For, it's it's such doublespeak, you know, both sides of the mouth talk where you're like, uh, comics should be a political, but also progressive. Shit is terrible, and we want just kind of comics the way they used to be. So you mean progressive by 1960s standards? Like, what yeah, the I fuck? Mean,
1: I've been I've seen a lot of similar arguments about Star Wars and the original trilogy versus the uh, new. Uh, sequel trilogy and you know whatever you think about this movie specifically a lot of people hate them because of that same uh belief system and uh, I've seen a lot of similar arguments of people being like you know these new these new Disney movies suck because they try to cram like a political message down your throat. And the original trilogy, the original uh, you know, trilogy like, where the, 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 the original, where
0: the villains are literal space Nazis, yeah, totally a, wasn't yeah,
1: political. In a similar fashion to the Captain America, it's like did you did you pay attention to the Star Wars movies or did you just watch them as a little kid and then just at the time not realize? What they were, and then you've been in that same mindset in that nostalgic mindset as you've watched them over the years to the fact to the point where you've never actually sat and like thought about what you were actually watching. Yeah, to 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 see the like the 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 so transparent uh uh imagery that it's like people fighting space Nazis, that it's just like it's just it's just Nazis.
0: Like, and they literally and in, you know, the emperor, the supreme leader, like these are all fascist terms, literally. Like, yeah. And you want like, you want to tell me you
1: want to tell me that the guy that made red tails wasn't trying to make a political statement.
0: <laughs> no shit. No shit. Yeah. The guy that made THX 1138.
1: Yeah. Really? But yeah, it's, right? it's, it's it's the same thing. It's just like you don't even what do you mean? Like you 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 liked this thing as a kid and then just never. Updated your filing system to like think about what things meant from an adult lens. Yeah, like I
0: I am a part of you know many.
1: That's another thing with the with the 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 Twilight Zone, the new Twilight Zone. Everyone's like, oh, this it's too political. Like the original Twilight Zone wasn't political. What are you talking about? That was literally the point of the show. It was it existed to be
0: political. That was the whole point of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so funny how those how we we as a as a culture, there's a certain percentage of the culture that's always living like 15 minutes in the past. And it's just like, "No, no, 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 no. I don't want to have to update. I just want to keep running on last year's OS." The laggards. Wanna... Yeah, dude, yeah. And the last bullet point here is does craft have any place in the art world that's solely about narrative? And the answer it does for me, baby? But probably not for the wider public.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean it's 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 kind of weird how technically amazing art just never quite rises to the import of art that is has this some kind of narrative craft around it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, even even when they do, like the technical achievement, you know, if we're mixing and matching our our mediums like the technical achievements in things like avatar or star wars or you know any of these big leaps forward just from a technological standpoint nine times out of ten the stories are very simple and the narratives surrounding them are very simple and it's framed to the public as you need to see this because it's made so much money like it's already been validated it's not gonna it's not risky at all you just need to see it because it's gonna be it's so much of a cultural touchstone
1: yeah and also like you know with avatar it's like the you know the 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 3d you have to see it yeah and, and like you know we, there was a whole world created in this 3d universe and all this stuff and then
0: like the artists where it's like it, the, it's a silent film yeah yeah and and like the the fine art world still has big stars that do massive shows and sell paintings for millions of dollars but it's it doesn't have the same you know there's not the same it, they don't occupy the same cultural space that they did 20 30 40 years ago you know like you know i could i can name 10 15 people from the even the 80s that were really big specifically primarily known as visual artists And like, as time goes on, obviously I can name a lot of people that are important to me that are big artists, but I don't know that my mom knows who Jenny Seville is. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know that my mom knows who uh, James Jean is, you know, where it's like, it's just not a thing that culturally we've replaced famous artists with the Kardashians now.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, uh, I, I, I feel like most people in terms of like fine art, it's like they know Thomas Kincaid. maybe they know Giorgio O'Keefe.
0: Ansel Adams.
1: <laughs> yeah and then, and then like the the, the the classics, you know you know but that, that's more of a historical thing really than a, an appreciation of art.
0: Yeah. it's just I'm aware that I am supposed to be able to say the words Leonardo da Vinci. yeah and he made the Mona Lisa, which is the most famous painting of all time. Yeah. And you and you really you aren't even
1: introduced to Mona Lisa as a piece of art. You're introduced to it as a thing in pop culture. You're introduced to it, to it like as a you know, there's a an episode of Looney Tunes where Bugs Bunny jumps into the painting and like sits in her lap or something. I don't know. Whatever. But yeah. that's that's how that's how you're introduced to it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's that it's the weird like hyper referential like. You're it's so famous that it's never not there. Yeah. You know, it's I mean, in some ways like Star Wars or like, you know, uh, the Beatles or, you know, NASA, you know, these kind of just like things that are around. Um, Yeah. But it's pretty weird to me that I feel like a lot of the other aspects of these touchstone pillars in pop culture they're more widely known. Like everybody knows the names of the four Beatles. Everyone roughly knows their story. Oh, they're from England. And then they went to Germany. They played in a shitty club. They got good. They took a bunch of drugs. They made music. And then they came to America and it it became super popular. Like that's the beats of their story, right? But I don't know that everybody would be able to say like, oh yeah, it was uh, painted for this, you know, Italian nobleman and then it got taken by the French king and then, you know, at, at one point, you know, Napoleon had it in his fucking bedroom and then it ended up at the Louvre and then this guy stole it and then that's what really made it famous. Like, I don't I don't think many people know the specifics of that. And it's yeah, evidence, it's it's just, evidence it's just, to the it's fact that, like, maintain. I couldn't even pronounce the guy's name consistently, <laughs> the guy who stole it. Like, I can tell you Mark David Chapman's name, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, this is basically a very similar story of, like, Vincenzo Pugera should have been, or Pugeria. How the fuck you pronounce his name? Vinny P. He should. This story should have the arc of he's the Mark David Chapman. He should die alone, despised. How dare you do this to one of our prized artistic human achievements? But no, literally nobody even gave a shit. They didn't even put him for prison for an, an entire year, six months. It's crazy. Yeah, they were just like, "What? What are you in here for again?"
1: Just get out of here.
0: Yeah, we, we what? Uh, in a painting? Yeah,
1: yeah. Go home. Eh. We need a We need to sell for a real
0: criminal. Yeah, you got some rapist. You got to get out of here, boy. See you. See you, buddy. And on that note, this has been Deep Cuts. I'm Dave Baker, and I'm Andrew Price. Please, <laughs> <laughs> please sub the show. You can find me online at heydavebaker.com, uh, or you can find me on Instagram at xdavebakerx, and on Twitter, drawn stuff. Posting lots of drawings and occasional snarky comments, but mostly, honestly, just drawings, really.
1: You can find me uh, stapled to the wall of a museum <laughs> by Banksy. Um, and you can also find me at DAPriceWrites.com.
0: And Robots in Comedy?
1: Yeah, you can you can follow me on Twitter, at Robots in Comedy, the letter in.